Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week, we're talking to two incredible chefs about their food journeys. Later in the show, we introduce you to Carlos Baez. His food journey began in Mexico City making tacos after school in his father's taquerias. Carlos is the executive chef and partner at The Spread in South Norwalk and El Segundo in South Norwalk and now in New Haven. He puts his heart and soul into everything he cooks. One of his specialties, global street food. How fun is that? He's a passionate chef that we really want you to know about. But first, we love when we get to have conversations with chefs everybody thinks they know so well from TV. But here, we get a more personal glimpse into their lives. Yeah, in this case, we mean glimpse literally. We recently Zoomed with Chef Aron Sanchez sitting in his kitchen in New Orleans. As you'd expect, it's beautiful, and his tío Mario was there chatting with us. We connected with Aron to talk about his memoir, Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. It's out in paperback now. We talked with Aron about some of those life lessons. His mother, the beloved New York caterer and restaurateur Zarela Martinez, and other mentors who helped shape Aron's approach to food and cooking. Later in the episode, we'll get into Aron's rise as a celebrity chef, one of the very first, 20 years ago, when Food Network experimented with cooking as entertainment. Now, Aron is a judge on MasterChef and MasterChef Junior on Fox. Aron, thanks for joining us here on Seasoned. Hola, como estas, guapa? Thank you for having me. Plum and I know you in so many different capacities. This, I think, Chef Plum. I think the first time we're talking to him is as an author. Wonderful. You and I have cooked together actually at Mohegan Sun a couple of years and maybe partaken in a couple beverages or two. Oh, man, that doesn't sound like you at all. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I, uh, I, I have to tell you, I have so many pages dog-eared in your book. It is a heartbreaking story. It is insightful. It really does paint a picture of you that I think a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. And so why write a book like this now? The biggest objective was to sort of position this as an inspirational tale, a cautionary tale, and also sort of a blueprint and how, how you can kind of get to, to the places you want to be and, and go and chase your, your goals and your dreams. And I wanted people to understand that it's not all easy it requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires a lot of a lot of soul searching, as you can imagine. I wanted people to understand my story and hopefully inspire them. I read the introduction twice. It's so you're setting the hook for sure there in the beginning, but that's the story of searching for the mole. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a chef, I'm reading that and just thinking, wow, that's so inspiring to find something like that that just wants to keep pushing you forward and forward. And so incredible. That intro, how did you come up with that? Yeah, I mean, the idea is that you want to kind of retrace and revive these these moments that are very poignant and actually serve as um, metaphors for my life and, and for what I felt is my calling. And the mole is one of those beautiful representative sauces that just explain the complexity, the traditions, the cultural significance. And I just thought I wanted to start with that. And then how important those initial trips to Mexico were for me to develop, you know, my own style and understand how I can preserve the legacies of these great traditional home cooks and then find my, my lane throughout that process. It's a wonderful place to start because you get around in this book. You yeah. start in Mexico, you go to the lower 48, you take us to El Paso, New Orleans, New York, California, and back. But I wonder if we could shift to El Paso to New York, specifically Sarela, your mother, who's so influential. And just talk about how she 
pulled herself up from the bootstraps mm-hmm. and went mm-hmm. from social worker to restaurateur. Yeah. And it's so funny how a lot of her story kind of mirrors mine uh, in the sense of the idea of being a single parent, understanding that you're going to go into the, the great unknown. And she basically did that. I can just only imagine the kind of emotional turmoil she was feeling inside to be able to go into a scary place like New York City with $5,000 to your name or whatever the paltry number was and going in and trying to make and, and seek her dream of having her name in lights. And that's what she wanted. So us as children going through that journey with her was turbulent. It was scary. It was uplifting. It allowed me to really sort of appreciate her, her drive, her fearlessness, all of that. And uh, there was a lot of uncertain times. I remember her saying, we're not going to have a lot of money, but we're going to get a nice apartment so we can appear like we have money. And she did something that I think is very smart. She came into New York City, started cooking from home and throwing these lavish parties and said to people that she knew, invite the most important people who are decision makers, people that can really put my name out there. She knew she had to be her own publicist back before publicists were really, you know, we hold them in this big, big regard. You got to believe your own hustle. Absolutely. Sometimes, and that Absolutely. sounds like what something she did and, and, and then imparted to you. Yeah. But some of those parties, Chef, is kind of like where the whole hospitality bug kind of bitch it, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was interesting because it just, you know, you go to New York and then you have all these quirky people and this diverse guest list of people that come in. I mean, we had people that were directors and writers. And my mom had a good friend who were actually porn cartoonists. You know what I'm saying? Like, and just this crazy, wild group of New York movers and shakers and influencers. And it allowed me to really understand how big the world is, how different people are, and how to be influenced by them. And I think that was something that was really magical. As I read your story, you're Mexicano, I'm Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. The beauty and the curse of the diaspora, the Latino diaspora, right, is it's so much a part of who we are. Sometimes we go through this parts of our lives, specifically professionally, where we have to explain who we are and where I come from. By the way, I love that title. Mm. Um, and I experiment with saying, I wonder if Aron says where I come from or where I come from, mm. um, because I think the two inflections have very different meanings. But I wonder if you could talk to us about what it meant to be a Mexicano coming from El Paso to New York, because New York is full of you say you're Latino in New York. You could be Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, Mexican, Guatemalan. And then also how your identity was maybe challenged once you went to California. Because being Latino in California means a completely different thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you come from a place like El Paso, Juarez, in the north part of Mexico, it's Mexican, Mexican, some more Mexican. And then we come over to New York and it's, you know, very primarily very Caribbean, Mexican. I mean, Latino when we got there, you know, so the Boricuas were in high and full effect. You know, you're talking about the Dominican presence, all these different sections of Latin America are represented there. And it allowed me to understand the different accents, the nuances, the food, all of that. It was so eye-opening and really cool because I felt like, wow, man, I'm just, I'm completely immersed in this beautiful melting pot of different Latin culture. And and it, and it allowed me to be more adventurous as far as eating and seeking out new friends. And then, of course, I suffered from this horrible malady called the, the Boricua heartbreak. And all these, these Puerto Rican women, they, they put, they, como brujas, you know, they put a spell on you. So 
It's true. Um, it's true. We have that effect. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And by sorry, I mean I'm not sorry. Ah! <laughs> we keep coming back for more, baby. You know what I mean? So Exactly. You're the brutos. You yeah. keep coming back for more torture. So, yeah. So it, it was cool. And then, you know, going to California and spending some formative years there in my career, it was back to roots with the Mexican vibe. And, uh, yeah, it just allowed me to understand and have a lot more pride from where I come from, you know, and and making sure, you know, to keep your language, you know. Hay un dicho que dice, cuando pierdes tu lengua, pierdes tu patria. So the idea of keeping up with your Spanish and that being your first language and making sure that that is front and center was very important to our family dynamic. I think across the entire country, I mean, every restaurant I've ever worked in in 25 years, Spanish is, is spoken tremendously. And even those of us who aren't fluent in a kitchen, though, the amount of Spanish is spoken it's pretty remarkable. And even if you're not fluent, you start to kind of pick up on it. And we call it kitchen Spanish. Yeah. You know, I, I just think for me, it's a little frustrating because you have a lot of people that are puffing their chest out saying, you know, I'm Latino, I'm Latina. And, and their Spanish is terrible. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, it's so important to keep up with it, you know, and I have a 10 year old that I'm constantly knocking him over the head to try to make sure he keeps up with it, you know, because I can't tell you how many business opportunities and friendships that I've, that I've maintained because I've kept up with my Spanish. And you're literally missing out if you don't refine it. It's that important. I live in New Orleans where it's all, hey, ho, baby, where you at, What's going on there? We're, we're about to go out there and make some groceries, you know what I mean? Well, well, speaking of, yeah. of New Orleans, that takes, a go- takes up a good mm-hmm. chunk of your, of your book. And so tell us about how that chapter, literally and figuratively, shaped your journey in, in becoming the Adon Sanchez that you are today. It was extreme. I mean, New Orleans is, and obviously I live here now, and I've always felt like I've had a, a deep connection with the city. You know, after I lost my father when I was 13, you know, my Tio Mario, who I currently live with right now. Tio. Hola, Tio. Hola. <laughs> <Tan> lindo. Um, <laughs> you know, Tio was there for me in a very tough time, obviously, and assumed the father figure role for me when I was going through, you know, hell um, emotionally. And, and I reacted poorly, as you can imagine. Teenagers are already incorrigible and have trouble with authority and discipline and all that. And then you couple that with losing a, a father. It's like you just go off the damn deep end. So I was up to no good and, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And I needed some structure big time. So my mom called Paul Prudhomme, who, by the way, didn't have any children of his own. He accepted me with open arms. I stayed at his home for that summer when I was 16. And he basically taught me the value of, of a team, a kitchen structure, how important it is to come and own what you do every day and how your behavior and how you treat others is a direct reflection of him and, and yourself. And that was, you know, apart from the food and, and, and teaching me how to taste and opening up my palate, it was really more life lessons than anything else. Life lessons, but, and I talk about this with Plum, and I think we, we, we toil with this idea of your craft, right? So I'm, you know, I went to journalism school, I'm a journalist, but I think, you know, 60% of the job comes from life lessons. And it's similar, I believe, in the culinary world, which is maybe your parent showed you how to make a scramble an egg, or maybe you decided you wanted to go to CIA like Plum or get some sort of higher learning with your craft. And that at least seemed to change for you as you started to 
reconcile all that, go work at Patria. So talk to us a little bit about that dichotomy of life lessons versus being classically trained in the food space and how you how you aligned those two or had to learn the hard way from those two. For me, I always I, I'm a strong believer that talent is something that you're born with, but skill and is something that you have to continue to, to work at every day. There's a lot of people that are talented, but doesn't make them great at what they do. You know, you can be great at something, but that doesn't make you a great person, right? Muhammad Ali had a beautiful saying. He says, you know, the service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. You see what I'm saying? So there's a big difference between service and hospitality. Service is putting down a fork and a knife and taking an order. Hospitality is anticipating the need of someone else, you fulfilling that, and that gives you joy. So it's basically putting others' needs before yourself. So that's extremely important to distinguish. And a lot of it, you know, being Latino is about pride and respect and how you treat others. And that's a big reason why I didn't want to necessarily go into those traditional European French kitchens where they berate you and like, that was not going to be me. You know, growing up, I was very unbridled. There's like a term saying, you know, Dennis Amansalvo, you have to be broken in or seasoned. And that was always my thing. Like when you have a wild horse and it doesn't want the damn saddle on it. You know what I'm saying? That was me. So going to Patria, that was an experience to see how our food can be elevated with proper technique, utilizing the best ingredients and creating this nuevo Latino cuisine that no one had ever seen before. And people were just blown away with it. And I was part of that movement. So that was really special. Full disclosure, I may or may not have had a night or two at Patria back in my heyday. Just want to just want to put it out Come there. On. Just want to put it out there. You're too young. Oh. I'm older than you. I'm 47. <laughs> older Stop than it. you. Oh, my God. You got me by, by a year and a yeah, half. Yeah, Stop yeah. it. <laughs> you look great. Hush. Next question. <laughs> So, well, Chef, I want to, you know, I don't look nearly as good as either one of you do, but... Um, but you have purple hair, and that counts yeah. for a lot. I do have purple hair, and I'm tall, so I don't know what that means. Uh, can we make kitchens a little shorter? And then you just you just rolled up your sleeve, bro. You're showing the pistolas. <laughs> Come on, yeah, it's hot down here, because I had to turn my air conditioning off. <laughs> uh, one of the okay. things I earmarked in the book here, Chef, that I thought was just so interesting, and in, I was in the same headspace there. You talk about when you went to Johnson & Wales, and you only went for a year, but you said... There were three reasons you went to cooking school. One, you had no other options. Two, you were totally unequivocally in love with the craft and nothing else could make you happy. Or three, you were insane. I was kind of with you there. You say I was a little of all three. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more with that. But what part of that do you think, was it the food that drove you there more? Or was it the need for, for me, I needed discipline mm-hmm. terribly at the time. And I got that going there. Was a little bit of that in there for you as well? Yeah, I mean, that time people were always like preaching, if you don't go to college and you don't have some formal yeah. education, you know, you're not going to mount anything. And at that point, I already worked in professional kitchen. So I, I took it, <laughs> I took it upon myself to just like, you know, bite, bite my webbles and go, you know, quick story. My mom had gone away to Europe, basically gave me money to visit culinary schools for three weekends in a row. I was going to go to CIA, Johnson and Wales and New England Culinary Academy. And guess what I did? I took the money and party. And I never went to see any of them, okay? <laughs> so then my mom comes back and says, all right, which one is going to be? And I just literally had the pamphlet in front of me. And I was like, Johnson & Wales, cool, right? 
That's right. And then I'm like, oh my God. So then I remember my sister had a boyfriend named Joey Germano. He was a, a jeweler. So my sister and Joey drive me up 95 from New York to Johnson & Wales. I got like two suitcases and a TV. And then we literally, we kind of drive into Providence and there's this beautiful park called Federal Hill. Uh-huh. And they have like Brown and RISD. And I see all these really cute girls playing volleyball. I'm like, man, I made the right call on this one, right? Home yeah, run. Yeah. Then you cross, you literally cross the tracks. <laughs> And you're into Cranston where Johnson and Wales is. And I'm like, not a good look. And I was like, this is what I get for being a bad boy. Mm-hmm. And I walked up there. And of course, my roommate was this big Sasquatch smelly thing. And my sister starts crying and then goes to the store. They call it the Packy, the liquor store. Gets me a case of beer. Drops me off at the room and says, I miss you. I love you. Got a man. So... That was it. The seedy underbelly. I love it. Exactly. Jay Wu, baby. You're listening to our conversation with chef and author Aaron Sanchez. He was just hinting at why he lasted approximately one year at culinary school. There are more life lessons to get coming up. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. After the break, Aron opens up about his mental health and the very early days of Food Network and how he dealt with being the only Latino chef on camera. I don't like victimization. I don't like playing that card. And that's for me, that's how it's always been. But now, like, the message has changed. This is Season. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking with Aaron Sanchez, award-winning chef, TV personality, and philanthropist. He's the chef and owner of Johnny Sanchez in New Orleans and a judge on MasterChef and MasterChef Junior on Fox. He's also the author of two cookbooks and his memoir, Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. It's out now in paperback. In our first segment, Aaron describes some of his early life in Texas and New York. We left off with his drive to culinary school and the realization that uh, it wasn't for him. Restaurant work is hard. It really doesn't matter what your job is. The hours are long and it takes a toll on your relationships and your mental health. Aron was honest in his book about how he's managed his depression over the last 10 years. You take us through this journey, which thank you, by the way, of being so transparent in your book, because I think, to your point, it doesn't only speak to people in the culinary world or Latinos, it speaks to every person. Um, And you're very open about your own mental health, which Mm. is something we've seen. You know, I think it's easy for folks to be like, he or she is a chef, they own a restaurant, they're rolling in cash. What do they need to be depressed about or upset about? And so can you tell us, I know, but for people who have not read the book yet, the pivotal moment where you were like, I need to get my act together here. And I'm not talking about when Sariela sends you to Outward Bound, but when you were a full-fledged adult and you're like, okay, this is real and I need to address this and how you addressed it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I remember just getting up in the mornings and being completely overwhelmed and I felt like something was off. I wasn't enjoying the experience of going to work. Like I went through this period of time where I wasn't drinking or even going out or doing anything. I would literally go to work and come back to my apartment 
they kind of just sit there. And I remember just something feeling off. I was like, damn, man, what is this all about? And then started going to see a therapist and kind of talking a little bit through everything. And they're like, yeah, man, you, you know, you're depressed. You have depression issues and that you need to address that. So through that, um, you know, I was prescribed some antidepressants, which is still a part of my life and, you know, smaller than it was prior. And coupled with the therapy, I think that is what really got me through a dark time. But one of the biggest distinctions was a lot of people will take the antidepressants, but don't do the therapy. It's not like some magical pill. You know what I'm saying? So that was really important to do. And through that, you start seeing light at the end of the tunnel. You start seeing that other people live with this. I think a big help for me was understanding how to have balance. I felt uh, obviously being a parent and starting a family and getting married and understanding all of that, how to be able to divide my time and prioritize was extremely important as well. And the therapy helped with that. I still made a lot of mistakes and continue to make mistakes, but... You're human. Yeah. And it just opened my eyes up. You know, my career has had a lot of casualties. You know, I, I can safely say that a big part of why I'm not married is because of my career. And, and I felt like I had an opportunity that I needed to live up to this, this person that I created and this role model and figure. And I couldn't let people down. And then ironically, the people you let down the most is in your own home sometimes. Absolutely. But I've learned, and you know, this was 10 years ago and through that, you know, you get wiser and get smarter. So yeah, uh, absolutely. The, the business itself can be very, very difficult on relationships and friends. And you seem like you have this group of friends you, you're with constantly, you know, after work and whatnot, but still somehow you feel lonely. I, I, I get it. Yeah. And, you know, and as much as you are forthright and honest about it and say, look, my life is 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning to midnight. I don't take Fridays and Saturdays off. Like, this is me. Mm-hmm. And as much as you share that with your partner and try to be very transparent about it, once you're living and going through that, it's very hard to deal with. Chef, do you think that going down that dark place for you kind of started when you came back to New York and had that first executive chef job? Yeah, it started kind of there. I shouldn't have taken that job at El Rey, to be honest. I was way over my head. I had good ideas. I'm a good cook. I just didn't know how to manage people. I needed more seasoning as far as the, the, the administration and the management part of, of the job. And um, that was really the, the nuts and bolts of it. I didn't want to you know, accept failure. So I kind of just pivoted. That was the first and the last time I ever got fired. And then I just wanted to go and figure out my path and making sure that I was the captain of my own ship. Yeah. And that's what ended up happening. There are so many topics we want to get to in your book, and we're also mindful of your time. But I wonder if we could fast forward you open the book with this beautiful description of going back to Mexico, looking for the mole, and you were with a film crew, and you were on Food Network. And something that was interesting to me, not only as someone who watched Food Network, someone who has had a relationship with Food Network, is that you realized, this is great. I am famous, not because I necessarily want to be, but because someone decided I would be. And somehow, by being the only I feel tokenized. Can you explain what that is, what that sentiment is? Because I have felt that in my own life, Mm. that I worked at Good Morning America and I filled a box. They needed a Latina and there I was. Yeah. So while I was so gracious, you know, I was so happy for the job, I was like, huh, good thing my name is Marisol Castro. And I wonder if you struggled with that or what, how you squared that, have you squared it? 
Yeah, I mean, initially, I was there during the inception of Food Network. I remember like going to do the shows. They had a studio on, on 44th and 6th Avenue where it was in a high rise and you had to bring all your own mise en place, all your own things. You would go there and they had all the sets tucked into these little corners of this one big room. And they were really just trying to figure out their identity. And I remember being asked to do, like the host was so out of touch. You were like, so we're going to be having this chef, uh, Aaron, and this is going to be for Cinco de Mayo. And I was like, no mames. I was like, it can't get any worse than this. So, and then from that, I would do like the Latino Christmas, all the different sort of token Latin holidays. I just said, I'm going to work the system. I'm going to get this opportunity. And my goal, and still is my goal, is to use this as a platform to get butts and seats initially. You have to also remember, I was there during the birth of a celebrity chef. Me and, and, and others, Bobby and people like that, and Michael Simon and all these other folks that we were there prior to that, where it started becoming entertainment. It wasn't like a, you know, like what Julia Child did or Jacques Papin or Sarah Moulton. It became this other thing. Yeah, being the, the, really the only Latino, there was a lot of pressure. I felt like I was carrying the image for our people. And yeah, it was a lot to deal with. But I didn't get too caught up on all that. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I don't like victimization. I don't like playing that card. And that's for me, that's how it's always been. But now like the message has changed. Now, inevitably, when I go out to eat, Latinos come out from the kitchen and say, that's our guy. That's our all. That's awesome. <laughs> what a great story. It is nuestro cabrón, you know? And that right there is, is powerful. And I've done television for, for 20 years. And I keep thinking there's going to be some young hotshot that's going to take what I got. And no one's come up. So got to keep riding it. But I'm not an actor. You know what I'm saying? I do television to augment my thing. I'm a cook. I will always support my family because I have these things right here. You know, so I don't stress it as much as some people that need to get that audition or need to land a show or any of that. The opportunities always come because people see the genuineness. They see the passion. It's infectious. People want to be around that. I would agree. I also am dying to know, what do you make for dinner on the regular? Oh what are you and Theo Mario eating? What are you going to make for dinner tonight? Or is he cooking? What, what are you and your husband eating? Well, first of all, I don't have a husband. <laughs> okay. Um, but... What is your, what is your boyfriend make? Oh, gee, he, I do all the cooking. So, for example, last night... I had grilled lamb, I had arro blanco, con habichuela blanca, and an arugula salad with beets. Habichuela! Habichuela, spoken like a, true, like a true Puerto Rican, because I say habichuela, what do you say, Aaron? Está brutal, está brutal. Está uvita, uvita. See, listen, habichuela, okay, for the non-Spanish speakers, I'm saying habichuelas are beans, and we say which frijoles. is what a lot of people and, and Mexicans say frijoles. Oh, it's the beauty of the of the language. So you still haven't answered my question. What are you making for dinner? Tell us what we're eating at the Sanchez household. Tío, saca el chile verde, por favor. Oh. So we may... We're going to have a show and tell. Yes. A scratch and sniff, if you will. <laughs> Tío's a fantastic cook, and he makes all the dishes that I love. When I travel, because I travel over 200 days a year, mostly, and he makes these wonderful, come on. Chile Torreal. Come over here. Hola. <laughs> Hola, tío. Hola. <laughs> so he makes the chile torrado, uh, torreados, which are basically 
roasted jalapenos, and you like to put soy in yours, right? Well, you can put soy, you can put uh, what's the size sauce? And Maggie sometimes. Maggie, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever you have. That's acidic. And, and, but vinegar. The, the key to it is to get the chiles before you roast them, and then you roll them on your hand. You roll them. Yes. And that will make the heat go up like you won't believe. You roll them with your hand, like uh, on top of a, your table oh, or wherever. On the table, on the counter, on the board. Uh -huh. And then you roast them. And while they're roasting, you get the, uh, whatever, the maggi, soy sauce, and lime juice. And you never wash the chiles. You have to, no. you have to take the, the charred bits off by hand. Because yes. if you're going through all that process to roast them, why the hell would you wash them, right? That defeats the perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, so Tio made a beautiful chile verde, like a pork with green chili, which was delicious. And then we always have tortillas, right. queso, cacique, of course, our favorite. So we're avid cooks, yeah. I feel totally like I'm, I'm not doing a good enough job as a chef. I had grilled chicken and salad last night because I've been working doubles in the Hamptons all weekend. Oh, oh, <laughs> pobrecito, bro, pobrecito. Yeah, no, come on, come on. I know he had to work in the Hamptons. I knew that was coming. He I knew in that the was Hamptons coming. all weekend. That's it. That's it. That's it. Actually, I really appreciated uh, the tips there on the on the chilies. I'm going to do that. Of course. What do you think you need, man? I mean... You know, there's only two master chefs, right? Me and Gordon here. <laughs> so I got, I got your back. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, chef. I appreciate it. Hey, one uh, of the great sure. things on the book, too, you have some recipes that are in here that I think are yeah. really not hard to follow, and they look fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was important to not, you know, typically the cookbooks will have anywhere from 75 to 150 recipes. I didn't want this to be a cookbook, but I felt that there was a need to do, I think we have 11 or 12 that kind of represent different chapters of my life and the dishes that really kind of spoke to me and called out to me during that, those times. Yeah. So that's why they're there. I'm going to look in here and, and see what I can make tonight, probably, hopefully. I'll have to send you a message. Say, Chef, I'm making your seafood stew. It's going to be delicious. <laughs> oh, that one, that one right there is the bomb diggity. That one's good. I'm trying to see if I have any bodhiqua recipes in here. I know how to make pastelón. I'm making that tonight with a picadillo. Get out! Let me ask you about... Espérate. Let me ask you about your pastelón while I have you. Because mm. I may never speak to you again. Stop it! Do you do your pastelón? Do you boil your platanos and then mash them? Or do you slice and fry? I slice and fry. Okay, good. So I take, I take a mandolin. And I like the, the maduros to be kind of not too soft. So I take them on the mandolin, then I fry them lengthwise, and then I start to do my weave. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, and layering. And for people who don't know what pastelón is? Basically, it's like a lasagna. It's like a Puerto Rican lasagna. A Puerto Rican lasagna in lieu of the actual pasta you would use plantains. has a picadillo, sort of a, a ground beef, delicious sort of mixture with sofrito, a mixture of peppers, onions, and garlic some tomato product in there and it's just layered and delicious oh yeah i love alcapurrias i love mofongo all that good stuff it's so good like i said you know you boricuas man you get to us man and you hit us straight to the heart someone has to i hope your boyfriend treats you right because if oh, you don't I... i'm a, i'll be i'll be around you'll come up here and show him who's boss <laughs> i don't think you do yeah. anybody do that marissa i'm pretty sure you'll do that <laughs> yeah exactly before we have to let you go and make more food with 
el tío, talk to us about um, the Aaron Sanchez scholarship funds. Because yes. this, this for me, for me, it's one thing to be a celebrity. It's a whole other thing to be a celebrity and put your money where your mouth is. So tell mm. us what it is mm. um, and why you decided to start it. It's funny because, you know, I do a lot of different things, as you can imagine, right? We have a fantastic team that works alongside me. So I have a restaurant and then I have, you know, T-shirts. I represent products and I have books and all that other stuff and all these things I do, right? But the philanthropy part of it was something that I, was absolutely crucial for me to sort of reaffirm everything that I've done and give back to an industry that's been so generous and kind to me. And it's sort of like this cleansing of the soul, right? Because you didn't want to feel like you've taken advantage of all these opportunities, but without giving back. So when I started out, and we were speaking earlier about the token Latino, I felt there was huge disparities in Latinos achieving uh, administrative executive positions in kitchens. And I just saw that. I remember chefs saying, Latinos, they don't, they're not going to be chefs. You guys are prep people and, and, and dishwashers. And I said, you, just teach me how to do the terrain, and I'll do it better than you, right? So about six, seven years ago, I started thinking, okay, now it's time to identify the next generation because our most valuable commodities are children, our youth, right? So I wanted to create this new, uh, these new leaders in the culinary field from Latin descent, Latin backgrounds that will be able to chase their dreams to be the next chingones, the next leaders. And I didn't want education to be something that was going to be missing. From that uh, came the idea of having a partnership with a great culinary school and be able to go out there and send these kids for this life-altering experience, couple that with the mentoring and this great network of peers and colleagues that I have. So then they can actually take, after the, their schooling is complete, then they can go out and get the mentoring and the experience that they need. So it's been phenomenal. We've had Seven kids graduate from the program. I have another four coming in this year. I have a great girl from Puerto Rico. Natalia, who's from Puerto Rico, is my heart. And she's wonderful. You have to look her up on, on the Instagram. Follow her story. She's just amazing. And we have more women than men in our program, which is awesome. Like, I think we have a good balance. So I want to make sure that la mujeres, uh, you know, are, are represented really well, which is so important to me. Because of my mom, obviously. And uh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Chef, we really appreciate your time. Seriously, thanks for spending some time with us here. Yeah, of course. That was Aaron Sanchez. You've been watching him cook and judge other cooks on TV for 20 years. We spoke with him about his memoir, Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. It's out now in paperback. Aaron's latest philanthropic effort is devoted to the empowerment of Latino youth through culinary education and mentorship. Learn more about it by visiting aronsanchezscholarshipfund.com. Aron is spelled A-A-R-O-N. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you'll meet a local chef at the top of his game. He uses street food from all over the world to connect with his customers. They want to eat, let's say, a few tacos, but they also want to do the fried noodles and summer roll and banh mi, and glass noodles. And they love everything. That's the thing. <laughs> like, I love that. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Today we're sharing the food journeys of two chefs we really admire. If you live in Fairfield County, you've likely already tasted the work of Chef Carlos Baez. He's the executive chef and partner at The Spread in South Norwalk. And his restaurant El Segundo, also in South Norwalk and now in New Haven too, is his global street food concept. And we absolutely love this. If you haven't been to Carlos's restaurants yet, I wholeheartedly recommend them. He's one of my favorite chefs in the whole state. We talked with Carlos recently while he was at the spread. He had time for a quick Zoom before heading to New Haven to check on the newest El Segundo. Carlos describes how his father's influence in Mexico and later being mentored by a Japanese sushi master shaped his approach to cooking. I started working when I was uh, 14 in my dad, at my dad's taqueria in Mexico City. And from there, you know, I never left the, uh, the cuisine. When you were at those early days in Mexico City, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. What did your dad do? Was it, did he own the taqueria? Was it assumed that you were going to work with him because you were his son? Or was it something you wanted to do? Oh, I was probably six years old when I remember that he was working at this place. And uh, he started with one and uh, then he opened another place. And the third place, he got three taquerias in Mexico City. And when I was old enough, I started to work with him. First of all, I was just doing it so I could spend time with him. Because he was a hard worker. He was working all the time. When I was uh, 14, he finally made the decision to, to pay me some <laughs> some money. And then, uh, you know, I like it. And everything that he did to me, it's, um, I use it on these days. It's, it's, it's amazing. He was an amazing teacher, good mentor. He doesn't do it anymore. But uh, I, I mean, I still run into his recipes. The fact that he brought you to work with him, I love that because as a chef, as a father, like I get it. I mean, it's tough to be able to have that time to spend with your children and be around your family. So why not bring them to work? Let's get some free labor for a little while and then occasionally give them a buck or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I got two daughters. One is 15 and the other one is eight. And like I try to to teach them the most I can. Like if we, we're going to be home and we're cooking something together, let's going to make the pasta. Um, you know, I, I make them work. I make, you know, to do the pasta and and to grate the cheese and everything. It's, it's a good family time, and it's amazing how you can pass that to someone else. Carlos, when you first started working alongside your dad, can you tell us what was the first thing you learned how to do, and what are the first things that you made? So the first thing that I learned how to do, it was to cook suadero meat. Suadero is a, it's a typical dish. It's a typical taco in Mexico City. And... It was a small place. It wasn't like a big restaurant, but it was a small place where they got like six different tacos and that's it. So I started with one and he teach me the next one. He, he was one of those guys that like, he wouldn't let you to move to the next step into you actually got the first one right. Like if I got to be cooking suadero for six months, I was doing that. Now, is that beef or is it chicken? It's beef. In the United States, we use brisket to do that, to make the suadero. In Mexico, we use a different cut. It's similar to brisket. I mean, you got to give us a couple of tips that, you, that your dad taught you here. I mean, you got to tell us how you make it. So, so suadero, it's a brisket. Let's say beef brisket. And it's confit. You use um, all the different herbs, thyme, rosemary. You put some orange peel, garlic. Lots of aromatics. I bet. I love it. That's fantastic. Actually, you can find those tacos on uh, El Segundo now. At the Taco Tuesday. <laughs> and what have you brought over? from those early days in your dad's taqueria, what have you brought over to El Segundo or even the spread? So we opened the spread uh, nine years ago. Wow. And when my partners and I, 
we thought about to do El Segundo, the first item it was on the menu, it was tacos al pastor. Why? Because it's one of my favorite things to eat. And it's so hard to find a good taco al pastor. So we made those and we start to do it at the, um, like a gyro, like the spit. And we were lucky enough that we couldn't keep up doing it, doing it, doing it. And it was everything that was handmade. I wasn't going to buy pre-made or anything like that. So it was, it was so hard because we used to sell out every night. So I find a way to have it and I hire more people. I teach them what to do. That's the number one item sell at Segundo. And I'm so proud. And every time I told my dad, like, who's making it? And he wants to, he wants me to introduce him to the people who are actually going to make him. My dad is, is like, it's, he's so proud. And I'm so proud to do his recipe. And I, and I told this uh, to Chef Plum before. I'm a lucky guy. I'm a, honestly, because he, he shared one of the... You're a hardworking guy is what you are. <laughs> <laughs> he shared one of the good secrets with me. You know, I just want to point out, and for anybody who hasn't been there, we keep talking about the different types of food at El Segundo. El Segundo is, and Chef, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, it's street food from across the world. Small plates, food you can eat with your hands from all across the world. that You could like almost walk around and eat. Is that a good description? Yeah. The, the same way you eat it on, on the street, you eat it at Segundo. We don't have uh, plates. Everything is it's going to be on a paper boat. We also don't use utensils. We, get, we use uh, chopsticks or pretty much everything you can eat it with you can. Uh, you feel like you're standing up in a, on a truck, uh, let's say in El Salvador or Colombia or Thailand. Well, Chef, with all these different things that are on the menu at El Segundo, I mean, that, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this was how many different types of cuisines you had to get into to start researching, to study, to learn. I mean, so many chefs, they focus on one or two types of cuisine. I mean, with all these different types of food, you must constantly just have your nose in a book or watching videos or studying to learn these different types of foods. I started working um, in the United States when I was 16, working at a seafood restaurant for over nine years. And um, I was lucky enough that uh, I find this place in uh, Rye, New York, La Panettiere, which it was actually my school. It was a French restaurant. And that's when I actually... I start thinking and food a different, completely different way. I went back to Mexico and I was um, a sushi chef in Mexico City and also in uh, New York. After that, I mean, I work in an Italian restaurant, but if I got a chance to create a dish, I always try to infuse the agent in Mexico. And that's, that's my goal. That's like, for me, it's like they got like the best flavors ever. And um, that's what I like to infuse. And I mean, El Segundo represents... Uh, 22 countries. I haven't been in 22 countries, but <laughs> <laughs> but how you say it, it was it was uh, definitely a challenge and, and a lot of cooking at home, a lot of cooking for my partners and let them taste uh, all the food and reading a lot. Honestly, it was items that I wouldn't even know they, they were there. And that's, that's the best part of it because it's, it's a learning progress. Carlos, what was your first experience with Asian food and what did you like about it so much so my first experience it was uh how to make a sushi and uh i learned from a guy his name is matthew Idesako. he's a japanese guy he got a restaurant in uh in mamaronek so the way that he teach it's a gift and the way that he that he teach me how to take care of the fish and that was the most important thing you not rush to do anything when you're making sushi you got to make sure everything is on point that's the number one. Everything is like the, the way that he cuts, the way that he makes things. And, and it's, it's all about technique and his hands and, and the, 
sharp knife and how to cut the fish. Yeah. He actually showed me how to how to fillet my first uh, salmon. I mean, everything that I learned from him, it was it put my mind on a different spot. And when I went to Mexico and I worked in a sushi restaurant, so I, I started doing um in Mexico they call a uh, tepanjaki, which it's hibachi here. So I, I did a hibachi for like six months. Like the hibachi guy behind the grill, like hibachi guy, like you would throw the shrimp and catch it in a little hat and light, <laughs> yeah. light the onion thing on fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did that for six months, and it's 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 amazing how you actually when you're cooking for somebody face to face and you make them feel special and they taste your food. Everybody loves it and make them happy. It's the, the, the thing. It's I love it. I will do that again anytime. I see a pop up happening. Absolutely. At either El Segundo or the spread. Uh, what can we call it? Hump day hibachi with Chef Carlos. Yeah. Yes. I'd pick cold hard cash to see that. You and me both. It's actually a good idea. You know, you know, <laughs> have it for 10, 10, 12 people. I will only charge you a very small commission for that idea. You just have to pay me in food. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I feel like it was a group idea. Where's my half? <laughs> well, you, you briefly mentioned um, French food, and we know that you have a love of Asian food. And it seems that you have this love of food and you can make food from a lot of different cultures. Is there something in common that threads all of those things together? The French cuisine, my boss recommended me to this French restaurant and the chef, he probably saw different, something different than me. And he teach me how to make all the, the sauces. And, and I was like, why do they put the chicken stock to reduce for three days to get a core of it? In the beginning, I didn't understand it, but when I start eating the family meals that he was putting together, it was started making sense. Mind changing. It was yeah. It was it was different. And he used to make it was family meal, but it was always a bottle of wine, fresh baguette, and dog confit, or always with the sauce. And we eat a lot of dog, a lot of rabbit those days, and it was amazing. Yeah, and just so you guys know, family meal that Chef's talking about is when. A lot of great restaurants will have a big meeting before the shift where everyone will sit down and eat. The restaurant will feed everybody who's going to work for the night, kind of talk about things that are going to happen. And apparently at this restaurant that Chef Carlos was at, they would all have wine as well. This sounds like a great restaurant. I was just going to say, I would go back to being a waitress <laughs> if my family meal was like that. I was a terrible waitress, though. <laughs> so, you, so you have the French food, and that's where you, you learned, it sounds like, that there was a lot of intricacies, you know chicken stock that took three days, yet it made you think about food in a different way. Did that give you a different appreciation for food and different types of food? What did that experience do to carry over so that you expanded your palate and expanded your ability to cook from different cultures? The way that I see, let's say, my food, when people come from all over the world to the States and they sit down at Segundo, they think it's a Mexican restaurant. When they open it, uh, the menu, and they see they, they can find things from Canada, from Colombia, from Chile, from Argentina, from Portugal, Italy, France, Vietnam, Philippines. And they taste the food and they're like, who is this guy? Who made that many different dishes? And he executed the right way. And I take food really seriously. And that makes me feel like no one else because make people happy and when they come in from a different country and it's something they they miss and they probably they want to eat let's say a few tacos but they also want to do the fried noodles and summer roll and banh mi and a glass noodles and they love everything that's the thing like i love that 
Well, Chef, we certainly do appreciate your time today jumping in and telling us a little bit of your story and sharing some of your food history. And thank you so much. Gracias, Carlos. Thank you, guys. Hope to see you soon. You will. That was Carlos Baez. He's the executive chef and partner at The Spread in South Norwalk and El Segundo in South Norwalk and New Haven. Chef Carlos is hard at work dreaming up yet another new restaurant. Look for him to open a pizza shop next. For real, everyone, this is happening, and I am completely here for it. I'm Marisol Castro. And I cannot wait for Carlos's take on pizza. I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. I'm hungry. Thank you.